You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay <laughs> out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. It's now very cold in L.A. versus how freaking hot it was last week. I had my first, like, real big COVID scare in a hot second so far as of, like, 20 minutes ago. Still no COVID. So that's good news. Starting to take that a little personal, not going to lie, because I am immunocompromised. And I thought for sure I was going to catch COVID and I have not caught COVID. So, you know, good for me. <laughs> oh, and... um. Uh, by the way, Happy Easter, Passover, other holiday if you celebrate. This is a very non-Easter topic this week, so enjoy. Before we get going, quick correction from last week. I said that Diane Lane played Kay in The Godfather. It is not Diane Lane. It is, in fact, Diane Keaton. I have mixed up their names my entire life and decided, I guess, that it would be a good idea to just put that down on audio in a podcast. But yeah, Diane Keaton is Kay in The Godfather. Keaton, Keaton, Keaton. She was not an under the Tuscan sun. Anyway, on to movie theater movie reviews. This week, we've got Sonic 2, which again, another thing that is quite the antithesis of the topic that we're covering this week. As I've mentioned before, I got like next to no video game knowledge, but I enjoyed the first Sonic movie. So I figured, hey, what's two hours? Well, this movie is fine. It's cute. It's a kid's film, but like just because going to film school ruins watching movies for the rest of your life. I caught a lot of like little CGI mistakes, which I'm guessing is a byproduct of the pandemic. You know, they were doing it remotely, probably more. Not the biggest thing in the world. It's not going to be a big thing like it's like when it's on like like streaming or whatever. But on a big screen, it's quite glaring. But despite that, it was very witty. I liked the I liked the little jokes in it. And, you know, Jim Carrey performing at peak Jim Carrey is always a fun time. So, you know, it it is it it's what's advertised. So no need to dilly dally around. We've got a lot of ground to cover. As this week, we are covering a film that went way over schedule, way over budget, and nearly cost the director of the film all of his possessions and his sanity. That film was Apocalypse Now. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Francis Ford Coppola had made one of the best films in the history of film before or frankly since and had several Oscars to show for that work, was independently wealthy and now returned back to Northern California to focus his time on his company Zoetrope that had obviously fallen by the wayside, you know, when he was being super successful in Hollywood. 
The first film Coppola set his sights on, which would be the first big zoetrope film, was one he'd planted the seed for long before cameras ever rolled on The Godfather. The spark for Apocalypse Now came over a decade before it would ever make it to the big screen. Back in 1967, John Milius, Coppola's assistant at the time, was emboldened to write a script about the Vietnam War. Milius had wanted to fight in the war, but couldn't serve due to his asthma. Eventually, he came up with the idea to adapt Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which was based on Conrad's experiences as a steamboat captain in Africa during the 19th century. In the book, the captain is given the task to rescue a fellow ivory tradesman named Kurtz, who has reportedly gone off into the jungle and gone insane. Milius took that premise and adapted it to the Vietnam War setting, with Sheen's character Willard setting off to find and kill Kurtz, who is now an army colonel, instead of rescuing him. Milius had read the novel as a teenager and was reminded about it when his college English professor at USC had mentioned that several had tried, but all had failed, including Orson Welles, to adapt Heart of Darkness into a motion picture. Touching on Orson Welles real quick... He did more than actually just write a script for Heart of Darkness. Several wardrobe and makeup tests and even models were built and done at RKO, but the studio feared that it would go over budget and was subsequently shelved. Wells made Citizen Kane instead. Coppola gave Milius $15,000 to write the screenplay, with the promise of an additional ten dollars if it were greenlit. Some sources say that Milius's original title for the project was The Psychedelic Soldier, but Milius said in a 2010 interview that Apocalypse Now was always the intended title. Altogether, he wrote ten drafts, amounting to over a thousand pages. Warner Brothers 7 Arts acquired Milius' screenplay in 1969 with plans to shoot it the following year and release it a year after that. Milius wanted Warner to agree to let them go off to Vietnam as the Vietnam War was still happening and shoot the whole thing on like 16mm film guerrilla style. This was quickly denied for obvious reasons, and shopping the film to the other studios in town gave the, you know, got the, they got the same answer each place. Are you out of your mind? Absolutely not. We will not pay for this. Further, Milius had no desire to direct the film himself, so George Lucas took up that mantle. Lucas worked with Milius for about four years developing the film, while Lucas was still working on other films, including a little one called, like, Star Wars. Lucas had approached Apocalypse Now as more of a dark comedy and intended to shoot it after making THX 1138, with principal photography set to start in 1971. However, due to the studio's safety concerns and Lucas's involvement with other films, Lucas decided to put the project on hold. As a result, the film ended up in turnaround, which means that since there was a major issue with the film in pre-production, the film basically just went back to the drawing board to work out the kinks. When the film was eventually made, Milius saw very little of his original work on the screen. God, this would have been a crazy different movie if Lucas had done it. Coppola was eventually drawn back to the project, acquiring the rights for the script in 1974. But at this point, Coppola was deep in the conversation and The Godfather Part Two when Lucas dropped out. But he wanted to make the film, so Coppola assumed the directing mantle, throwing a couple million dollars of his own money in the pot to do so. While promoting the second Godfather film, Coppola began scouting locations in Australia, eventually deciding on the Philippines for its access to American military equipment and cheap labor. They cost a whopping 2 to $3 a day. 
Copley even made a deal with the president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, to pay the military thousands of dollars a day, including overtime, to use their resources, including an entire fleet of helicopters. This was the case, of course, unless the helicopters were needed to fight the communist insurgents in the South. Throughout filming, the soldiers would have to bail in order to do this. By the by, the U.S. Army had outrightly refused to assist in any manner of making this film because of what it was about. But, you know, that's kind of goes without saying. By the end of 1975, Coppola had secured some other funding from United Artists as well to make the film. He ended up with a budget somewhere between 12 to $14 million based on estimates, eventually amassing about $21 million. United Artists promised some of the money under the assumption that Marlon Brando, Steve McQueen, and Gene Hackman would be the film's stars. Now, of course, if you've seen this film, you know that only one of those people ended up in the movie. Steve McQueen was Coppola's first choice to play Willard, but he didn't want to leave the U.S. for the length of time required to do the part. Also, he wanted $3 million, which Coppola was not willing to pay. It ended up costing Coppola a bit more than that to not have Steve McQueen in his movie, as when McQueen dropped out, Coppola had to return five of the $21 million he'd raised. Eventually, after asking several people whom all either didn't want to be out of the country for that long or catch a jungle disease, eventually led Coppola to Martin Sheen, whom Coppola had seen for the role of Michael in The Godfather. But Sheen had already accepted another job, so Harvey Keitel was cast. Gene Hackman also wasn't ultimately cast. I couldn't figure out exactly why. And Robert Duvall would take up the mantle of the character that would eventually be called Kilgore, a part that would nab Duvall an Oscar nom for just 11 minutes of screen time. Prior to departure for principal photography, Coppola took out an advertisement in the trades declaring Keitel, Duvall, and others as the quote-unquote first choices for the film. Also named were several other actors, including Harry Dean Stanton, whom would not appear in the final film. On March 1st, 1976, Coppola and his family flew to Manila and rented a large house for the planned four-month shoot. Four, four months. The film was due to be released on Coppola's 38th birthday, April 7th, 1977. During filming, Coppola asked his wife Eleanor to shoot a documentary to be used for publicity purposes in the future. Shooting started about three weeks later on March 20th, and Keitel quit within a month. Coppola returned to Los Angeles and replaced Keitel with Martin Sheen, whose schedule had opened up. He arrived in the Philippines on April 24th. Reportedly, only four days of reshoots were required after the change was made. According to Coppola, one shot of Keitel as the character made it into the final film, a shot from the distance of the riverboat as it is moving through the water. Oh, and by the by, at the time, the Philippines had no professional film laboratories, meaning that the raw film negatives had to be shipped to the U.S. to be processed. This meant that the entire movie had to be shot blind. Coppola could only see his shot footage on his returns to California, which is insanity. The next major upset was a typhoon, Typhoon Olga to be exact, and she wrecked somewhere between 40 to 80% of the sets on May 26th, 1976. After the typhoon, most of the cast and crew returned to the United States for six to eight weeks. Some did stay behind to scout new locations and rebuild the Playmate dancer set that had been destroyed in the typhoon in a completely different place. I'm guessing in a spot that was more typhoon-proof. 
During the production pause, Coppola and family returned to Napa, where he struggled to find an ending for his script. Around this time, the production, despite having bodyguards constantly watching at night, one day had the entire payroll stolen. According to Coppola's wife, Eleanor, as the heat and humidity intensified, just two months into filming, Apocalypse Now was six weeks behind schedule and $2 million over budget. Coppola, in a recorded conversation with Eleanor, stated that he was terrified he was going to make a terrible film on what was then a very timely and important subject. It still is, but, you know, way more so back then. He was worried it would be too pompous or would it just be absolute trash? There was $20 million on the line and and the quality of the film was causing Coppola a great deal of stress. At least three times during production, he flirted with the idea of ending his own life. The money would be a stressor throughout the entire production as if the film failed, Coppola would lose basically all of his personal possessions. Everything was on the line. As all of this happened, by the way, the press stateside claimed that Coppola was going crazy in the jungle. When filming recommenced in July of 1976, Marlon Brando arrived in Manila late, drunk, without having read the script or the source material, and very overweight, which was not good for his character, whom is described as tall and thin, of which the 5'9 Brando was now neither. He began working with Coppola to rewrite the ending of the script he hadn't read as his physical appearance had nullified it. Multiple times before even arriving on set, Brando had threatened to quit and keep the million-dollar advance Coppola had given him. After several days of arguments over single lines of dialogue, while the crew just sat around and watched it happen because they had nothing else they could do, Coppola eventually agreed to an ad-lib-style script for Brando. In Heart of Darkness, you can see some of the raw footage of several of Brando's scenes, and Coppola is feeding him lines and prompts to get him to do the bare minimum of his job. Coppola downplayed Brando's weight gain by dressing him in black, photographing only his face, hiding him in shadows, and having another taller actor double for him to portray him as six foot five, which Coppola hoped would make him look almost like a mythical, mystical kind of character. While shooting his first appearance in the movie, the scene in the hotel room, the mirror that Martin Sheen's character breaks was not a prop mirror, and when he hit and broke the mirror, he cut his thumb open real bad. All the blood in that scene is Sheen's blood. It is real. He is actively just bleeding all over the damn place. Sheen has said this performance where he writhes and smears himself in blood, was completely improv and he used it as an exorcism of sorts, his words, for his long-standing alcoholism. It kind of goes without saying, Sheen was super drunk while shooting this scene and had told the camera crew to just let the cameras roll. Also during the scene, Sheen began crying hysterically and tried to attack Coppola. The crew was so disturbed that they had wanted to stop because it was... You know, it was clearly this man is having a breakdown, but Sheen would not let them. By the by, the scene was shot on Sheen's 36th birthday. Some of the raw footage is in Hearts of Darkness and it's truly haunting. It's 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 hard to it's hard to watch. But yeah, drugs and alcohol were being consumed like vegetables and water during the production. One actor in the documentary Hearts of Darkness recalled dropping acid and taking speed while they were shooting. God knows what else. I mean, I'm sure every drug A through Z was present on that set at some point. You uh, you had to. Like the the freaking chaos that that production was like I there just had to be just so many drugs. 
After Christmas 1976, Coppola had viewed a rough assembly of the footage, but still needed an ending. He was not happy with that ending. He returned to the Philippines in early 1977 and resumed shooting. On March 1st, 1977, Martin Sheen, who was only 36, had a heart attack and struggled for a quarter of a mile to reach help by way of a public bus. When he reached the production office, they took him to the hospital. The heart attack was so severe, he was issued last rites by a priest who didn't even speak English. By then, the film was so over budget, Sheen worried that funding would be halted if word about his condition reached investors and rumors of what had happened had already reached the trade papers. So Sheen claimed that he'd suffered heat stroke instead of a crazy bad heart attack at 36. Until he returned to the set on April 19th, his brother Joe Estevez filled in for him, mostly in wide shots. Coppola later admitted that he could no longer tell which scenes were of Joe and which scenes were Martin. Also, all of the VO is done by Joe, not Martin. They sound that similar. A very real water buffalo is slaughtered with a machete for the climactic scene of the movie. Yes, unfortunately, that was a real animal. It was part of a ritual performed by the local Ifigo tribe, which Coppola had previously witnessed with his wife Eleanor and his film crew. The ritual, by the way, is in Hearts of Darkness, so if you watch that, keep it in mind. It got very close to making me a vegetarian, not gonna lie. Although it was an American production, subject to American animal cruelty laws, that's a big no. The scenes were shot in the Philippines and therefore weren't monitored. There wasn't really anything they could do about it. Despite this, the American Humane Society gave the film an unacceptable rating. Real human corpses were bought by production from a man who turned out to be a grave robber. The police questioned the film crew, held all of their passports hostage, and soldiers eventually took the bodies away. Oh, and when the soldiers reached the temple in the movie, the severed heads everywhere were real people they had buried in the sand, which is just fucking batty, man. The lack of an ending was still weighing heavily on Coppola's mind, whom was now musing with his wife about finding a way to maim himself enough to hopefully not kill himself, but like injure himself enough to get him out of making what he thought was a shitty movie. With the help of Dennis Jacob, a creative consultant on the film, Coppola decided the ending could be, quote, the classic myth of the murderer who gets up the river, kills the king, and then himself becomes the king. It's the fisher from the Golden Bough, end quote. And that's pretty much what happens. Principal photography mercifully ended on May 21st, 1977, 14 months after shooting had commenced. In total, the cameras had rolled for 238 days. Coppola had lost 100 pounds in the jungle and had shot nearly 200 hours of footage. The budget for Apocalypse Now had now doubled to over $25 million, and Coppola's loan from United Artists to fund it was now at $10 million. To cover this on their end, United Artists took out a $15 million life insurance policy on Coppola. By June 1977, Coppola had offered his car, house, and the Godfather profits as security to finish the film. When Star Wars became a gigantic hit, Coppola sent a telegram to George Lucas asking for money. The release date for the film was then pushed back to spring 1979. In April 1979, Coppola showed the film to a group of 900 people, and it didn't go over great. A month from then, he had been invited to screen Apocalypse Now at the Cannes Film Festival. United Artists was not super stoked at the idea, as the film was, at the time, unfinished. 
But since his 1974 film, The Conversation, had won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is their equivalency of Best Picture, Coppola agreed to screen Apocalypse Now with the festival. The week before Cannes, Coppola screened a 139-minute version of the film three times in a Westwood, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles, theater. Coppola allowed critics to attend these screenings, believing they would honor an embargo not to review the work in progress, because it was a work in progress. Do I need to tell you what happened next? I mean, I do because it's my job, but you know what happened next. On May 14th, Rona Barrett, a gossip columnist, reviewed the film on Good Morning America, calling it a disappointing failure. Variety, believing that the embargo on the film had been broken, published its review the following day, saying it was, quote, worth the wait, and calling it a, quote, brilliant and bizarre film, so quite a different take than Miss Barrett's. They also noted that it was the first 70mm presentation without credits. Apocalypse Now, the theatrical original version, does not have any kind of credits. Coppola obtained permission to do this from the various guilds and instead provided a printed program which contained the credits to those viewing the film. The title of the film only appeared scrawled on a wall on a temple in the last third of the film and it was because they had to have the film's title show up at some point in the film in order to obtain a copyright on it. Those were the rules. When the film reached Cannes on May 19, 1979, Apocalypse Now was three hours long. The film was met with a great deal of applause as the first work in progress ever shown in competition at the festival. At the subsequent press conference, Coppola criticized the media for releasing premature reviews and for attacking him in the production during their problems filming in the Philippines. This is also when he said the famous quote, we had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little we went insane. And another gem from that press conference was, quote, my film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Apocalypse Now went on to win the Palme d'Or for Best Film, which it shared with another film, The Tin Drum, a decision reportedly greeted with, quote, some boos and jeers from the audience. But, like, let's be honest, which one of these films, you more casual filmgoers, have you heard of before, you know, this week? According to his book In the Blink of an Eye, the film's editor, Walter Murch, needed nearly two years to edit this movie. The initial work print was reportedly over five hours, but was eventually edited back to three for the Cannes Film Festival premiere and then further cut down to 147 minutes for the 1979 theatrical release. Contrary to popular belief, these versions were never censored for political content by the studio because Coppola had final cut. They couldn't do anything if they wanted to. Instead, some scenes were left out as Coppola took out things he wasn't really sure should be there. He did shorten the movie on studio advice, hoping that a shorter runtime would increase its commercial potential because they had a shitload of money to recoup. In 2001, Coppola admitted that he had cut too much and re-edited the film into a 196-minute beast, which he called Redux. He felt the world was now ready to see the content that he had cut out. In 2019, Coppola again reevaluated the movie and decided to remove 21 minutes of footage from the Redux version. This version he called Final Cut. 
On August 15, 1979, Apocalypse Now was released in North America in the only three theaters that were equipped to play the Dolby Stereo 70mm prints with stereo surround sound. One was in LA, of course, the other in New York City, and the third was in Toronto. The film, without credits, ran 147 minutes, and tickets were $5, which was a new high for LA. Apocalypse Now ran exclusively in these three locations for four weeks, before opening in an additional 12 theaters on October 3rd. On October 10th, the 35mm version, which had credits, was released in over 300 theaters. With the film finally, finally in theaters, Apocalypse Now adding in its $9 million advertising campaign cost a total of $45 million. While it holds a 98% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes today, back in 1979, the reviews were quite a bit more mixed. But people had been hearing about this film for over two years by this point and flocked to the theater. On its initial run, Apocalypse Now made $100 million worldwide. Today, Apocalypse Now is considered one of, if not the, masterpiece of the new Hollywood era. The film is also credited with helping make the music of The Doors popular again, eight years after the death of lead singer Jim Morrison, whom Coppola had attended UCLA with. In 1991, Eleanor Coppola, Francis's wife, if you forgot, released Heart of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, which follows in depth the making of Apocalypse Now. Eleanor was present for all 238 days of production by her husband's side, rolling behind the scenes. She also recorded several private conversations she had with her husband, which also appear in the doc. Like I said, I saw it for the first time this week. I loved it so freaking much. It is one of the best docs ever, and definitely the best one about filmmaking. It's so good. Coppola finished out the 1970s as one of, if not the, biggest director in Hollywood. The 1980s, as we discussed two weeks ago, would not be so kind. But a third round with the Corleone family in the early 90s would change Coppola's fortunes once more, enough to make a film about one of the most iconic characters that has ever graced the silver screen. But, as ever, that is a story for next week. Nothing else in the world smells like that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking big body. Smell! You know, that gasoline smell! The whole hill! Smells like... Victory. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. That would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate that. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering what is probably my favorite Coppola film, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>